Welcome to the first Clipper Chance Tax Zoomcast. I'm Dan Needle, the head of UK Tax at Clipper Chance. I'm delighted that we've just won the International Tax Review UK Tax Team of the Year Award. To celebrate that, this is the first of what we hope will be a regular series of tax zoomcasts. We're going to try not to give you hours and hours of detailed poring over legislation, but punch you two or three minutes summaries from our subject matter experts of what is the latest and greatest in each of our fields. To do that, I should introduce the Clipper Chance tax team. Hi, my name is Chris Davis. I'm the Global Head of Tax at Clipper Chance, and I specialise in the taxation of financing transactions. Hello, I'm Sonia Gilbert, and I head up our incentives practice. Hello, I'm Nick Mace. Hello, I'm David Harkness. Hi, my name is David Saleh. I lead Clipper Chance's UK real estate tax practice. I'm Tony Stewart. Hello, I'm Richard Callagher. We're going to aim for each of us speaking for no more than two or three minutes with the emphasis on news you can use, something that businesses can actually take away and do something that we think is important in the tax world today. So, first up, I'll ask Tony to say a bit about what's going on in the funds world. Tony. On the macro level, it won't come as a surprise that perhaps the biggest issue continues to be BEPS. And I think we've seen BEPS go through a number of stages, the initial proposals, the implementation, and then some of the difficulties that arise from that implementation. As many of you will know, BEPS has got a number of actions, and one of those actions specifically relate to tax treatment within the fund, yes, they can be problematic, but they, really, they are reasonably easy to deal with. Although that said, the recent changes to the Luxembourg and Portuguese securitization and associated company rules are likely to prove problematic for funds going forward. The more difficult BEPS provisions, though, are those that look through the whole fund structure, such as those dealing with anti-hybrid rules, and in due course the rules around Pillar 1 and particularly Pillar 2. And the real difficulty here for the funds is that they look to the tax treatment both of the fund and its investors. That requires a considerable amount of compliance and diligence on the part of the managers. And frankly, it comes down to the fact that none of those initiatives were really set up with funds in mind, and the industry generally not really got the level of traction that it wanted or needed to be able to implement those rules properly. It's not that people are trying to avoid the tax, they just need to play by the rules and know what to do. And then finally, the real, the real nub of the difficulty is that if these rules do have an adverse tax consequence, one of the problems is how do they pass that on to the investors? Indeed, do they pass it on to the investors? This isn't a case where an investor has done something wrong, it's just that its own tax characteristics may or may not cause a problem within the fund. And that's the difficulty that many managers and investors are currently grappling with. So who takes that risk then, Tony? That's a question to be discussed on every fund and negotiated. I think <coughs> what we're seeing in many cases, the fund documentation allows for that cost to be passed on to the investor. And other investors, of course, will say, if I'm not causing the problem, I don't want to bear the costs. But at the same time, the bad investor, open inverted commas, is likely to say, well, it's not, it's not my fault that I just happen to be resident in a jurisdiction that regards a partnership as opaque. 
and therefore I shouldn't bear the tax costs of the problem. So it's a real, it's a real difficulty and not one that, frankly, the historic private fund model has, has had to deal with because in the past, the bad investor has done something wrong. It's not provided information. It's been a, a recalcitrant investor for FATCA purposes. So this is a different new scenario that everyone's having to grapple with. Thanks, Tony. Richard, what's your perspective on the funds world? Thinking of the funds and wider asset management industry, one key area of focus at the moment is offshore versus onshore fund structures. As everyone will be aware, establishing and running fund structures in traditional offshore centres such as the Cayman and the Channel Islands has become more difficult in recent times. In part, this has been a function of the need for the offshore centres to establish greater substance in response to demands from the EU. The practicalities around building and maintaining substance have led many managers to revisit the decision to establish their funds and their presence in those jurisdictions. However, as a trend, the difficulties that can arise with an offshore structure have developed significant momentum recently. First, there was the decision by the EU to include the Cayman Islands on its blacklist of no non-cooperative jurisdictions. Whilst the Cayman may come off that list later this year, that's not certain. If it doesn't, that would be very significant indeed for Cayman structures, with the issues ranging from increased tax costs to EU investments, increased tax reporting obligations, and, just as significantly, investor sentiment. A number of institutional investors have internal policy restrictions on the ability to invest into blacklisted structures. However, even if the Cayman does come off that list, that won't be the end of the story. The next challenge will be for the Cayman-based funds to actually build up that substance and ensure ongoing compliance with the new rules. More recently, we understand that the EU is poised to add Mauritius onto its blacklist. This follows inclusion of Mauritius on the Financial Action Task Force's grey list in February. Like the blacklist, inclusion on the grey list is already causing problems for Mauritius-based structures. That's a point that many managers will be very focused on in the coming weeks and months. David, you were going to talk about the horror that is DAX 6. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about DAC 6 recently, and I thought I might mention a couple of things which mean it's perhaps less of a nightmare than they might think, and then one which maybe means it's more of a nightmare if they don't go about things the right way. So starting off with the more of a nightmare, a number of people I've spoken to recently have been starting to think about coordinating between their advisors and other people who've worked on transactions to try to make sure that there's a common view as to whether the transaction is reportable and how to report it. And on the face of it, that's a very sensible approach. The problem with it is that all the advice which lawyers give in relation to DAC6 is privileged. And there's something of a risk that if you splash around the advice by giving it to third parties who are trying to coordinate, then you actually waive the privilege in that advice. And what's even worse is if you ended up waiving the privilege, not just in the advice about whether it's DAC6 reportable or not, but in the overall advice. So my suggestion is to be very cautious about those coordination processes to make sure that privilege is not inadvertently waived. 
The second thing is maybe a more positive point, which is that some of the hallmarks are actually potential pitfalls for innocent transactions, but relatively easy to avoid. And the best example of that is confidentiality clauses. If you look at the confidentiality clauses in most transactions, they've got exemptions for um, disclosing things to tax authorities, but mostly the confidentiality clauses actually don't have the right exemptions, so that it may be that in a perfectly innocent transaction, the confidentiality clause itself is the thing that's a hallmark and makes it reportable. There are some quite easy fixes to that, some simple language that can be put into any confidentiality clause that means it's no longer a hallmark. We've been encouraging people to think about doing that so that they don't inadvertently trip into the AC6 reporting just by reason of their confidentiality clauses. And the final point is really a, a don't panic. So it is a nightmare, but actually not quite so much of a nightmare as some people are worried about. There are two categories of people who have to report under the AC6. There's the promoter who's designing, marketing, etc. And there's the inelegantly named service provider who's helping with the design, helping with the marketing, and so forth. Now, it may well be that many of the organisations that are thinking about whether they have to report or not are actually service providers. And the UK revenue in particular have been quite helpful in giving examples, the main one being a bank making a loan, if the bank doesn't know about the overall transaction, then they don't have to report. So in many cases, it will be the case that organisations, if they look closely at their reporting obligations, can conclude, in fact, they're a service provider. And so long as they're not willfully closing their eyes to things, if their usual DD doesn't reveal that there's a hallmark, then they don't have to worry about reporting that transaction. So that's possibly quite a hopeful note to finish on. Thanks, David. So still a nightmare, but perhaps not as bad a nightmare as it looked at one point. Exactly that. Nick, you were going to talk about some of the issues in corporate tax on M&A transactions. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I was just going to briefly discuss the trend of private M&A deals relying on warranty and indemnity insurance as a form of protection for historic tax issues. It's certainly not a new trend, but I think it's becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, it used to be restricted to private equity-backed exits, where if you didn't have insurance, there probably wasn't any meaningful protection um, for a buyer. But uh, warranty and indemnity insurance is now becoming commonplace across all types of deal. Um, You'll be familiar with this, but the scenario is that the seller, or in some cases selling management, would give a suite of warranties and quite often an indemnity for pre-completion tax liabilities, but their liabilities capped at a nominal amount, a pound. Those warranties and tax indemnity then form the basis of an insurance policy. So the premise is that if ignoring the one pound cap, the buyer would have a claim under the warranties or indemnity, then the amount they could have claimed is a loss which can be recovered under the insurance policy. Of course, the insurance policy has its own limitations and exclusions. Um, so, for example, it will have its own cap and its own excess or deductible, much like any insurance policy. But there are some other more interesting exclusions in relation to tax issues. 
Um, first of all, there are some standard tax exclusions, um, and these there are really three of them. They relate to secondary tax liabilities, so that's where the target's liable for unpaid tax of the seller. Liability for transfer pricing matters, and thirdly, the avail non-availability of tax assets like carried forward tax losses. And I think the rationale for these standard exclusions is really a lack of due diligence. So, for example, no buyer is going to be undertaking due diligence on the seller's general tax position um, in order to assess the risk of a secondary liability cropping up. I have heard brokers and underwriters say some positive things about moving away from a presumption of excluding these three issues, but I haven't really yet seen that, that happening in practice. I think of even more interest is the sort of general exclusion for issues of which the policyholder was aware at the time the policy is taken out. I think for warranty type claims, that doesn't really fundamentally change the dynamics from you know, a normal transaction where the seller is standing behind the warranties, because in those cases, the buyer can't claim any way for matters which have been disclosed. However, it does make a big difference in the context of claims under a tax indemnity. So ordinarily, a buyer would be able to bring a claim against a seller under an indemnity, even if it was fully aware of the issue. I mean, that's what an indemnity is for. But that's not the case under an insurance policy. Whether the buyer's awareness of a particular issue rises to the level that would exclude a claim under an insurance policy is, I think, a difficult question. But generally speaking, buyers need to be very cautious and ideally find other ways of dealing with known concerns. And the obvious solution is to try and price in the risk. That's not always straightforward because, you know, quantifying a tax exposure can be difficult. Um, so it puts a lot more emphasis on tax due diligence um, so that the issues are really properly understood and, and, and can be priced in as best they can. The effect of that means, of course, that an insurance policy isn't panacea for sellers because, depending on the commercial position of the parties, they may end up with a lower price than you know, they could otherwise have obtained if they'd been prepared to give an indemnity. So I think, in, you know, in summary, I think there's definitely a place for warranty and indemnity insurance. Um, it can give the buyer meaningful downside protection where it would otherwise not have got any, and it can certainly enable a seller to get a clean exit. However, I do think that both parties on deal do need to be fully aware that there are some shortcomings and need to understand the impact that that's going to have on, on their negotiation. How many sizable tax insurance warranty claims have there been? <laughs> I, I don't think in, in the UK, I don't think there have been very many and certainly no big ones that I'm aware of. Um, I think in the US where the, this market is more mature. I think there, there is sort of a bit more of a, a history. But, I th yeah, I think the answer is that they're fairly few and far between, which I think is why the, you know, the insurers um, are prepared to off, offer competitive pricing on, on these policies. If anyone watching this has any intel about tax, tax warranty claims from insurers or has heard any rumours of us, do, do drop us a line. Very interested in it. So for my part... I talk a bit about disputes, tax disputes. The obvious point is that HMRC are under huge press, public, political pressure to raise revenues from corporates. I mean, I should probably correct that and say that 
before the current COVID-19 crisis, they're under huge pressure. When we come out of that crisis with public finances looking pretty strained, they will presumably be under even more pressure to raise money and corporates an obvious target for that. What makes it hard for HMRC is that most of the low-hanging fruit are gone. Throughout the 2000s, HMRC had a spectacular litigation record of taking avoidance cases and winning almost all of those cases. Now, surprise, surprise, any corporate in its right mind has steered clear of tax avoidance schemes for years, which means that if HMRC want to pursue revenue targets or want to pursue corporates for additional tax, they're not going to be able to do it with relatively easy tax avoidance schemes. They'll have to pick on technical points, classic technical tax disputes. And that is much harder. So I feel what's going to happen is when these cases start hitting the courts in two, three, four, five years, suddenly HMRC's performance is going to look measurably worse. Not because they're doing any worse, not because they're being softer, but simply because they've been forced to reach for less lower hanging fruit and they'll be losing a lot more cases. That, that, that's looking ahead. But right now, it means the corporates are finding their tax there under scrutiny from HMRC in a way that they've never been before. The other thing that we're seeing is that back in the 2000s, HMRC created a governance framework which was designed to stop settlements being reached in avoidance cases, which realistically HMRC should not be settling. And that followed certain very well publicised instances of controversial settlements being reached. And it was very effective to stop that behaviour. But now HMRC is stuck in that same governance framework for disputes that aren't avoidance disputes at all. And taxpayers, we are seeing quite often, have powerful cases, easily the better of the argument. But nevertheless, once the point's been raised, day one, by HMRC, and taken to a certain point, it is very, very hard for HMRC to back down because of all of these government's measures that are put in place to stop them backing down. So this is what's happening in the tax disputes world. Transfer pricing, employment taxes, Sonia can talk about that later, loan relationships, derivatives, maybe especially VAT, HMRC taking what a few years ago would have been surprising and esoteric technical points, and taking points that a lot of the time look quite weak, but pursuing them all the way. So what does this mean for business in practice? Well, what can you do about this? Well, one thing you can do is spot the moment when HMRC stop being your friend and become a litigation opponent. The moment where what had been a casual inquiry clearly becomes something HMRC are much more fixated on, and even though you think you're right, becomes clear they're not going to go away. At that point, you really should stop treating HMRC as your friend and start thinking about your litigation strategy. Think about making sure that your communications are not creating problems for your own case by generating unprivileged correspondence and materials, and think about whether you should be getting, for example, witness statements and other evidence now, given that it may be 10 years before the matter reaches the courts, and the people who know exactly what happened just, just may not be employees then, and even if they are, their memories may, may become somewhat shaky. So get on a litigation footing, assemble evidence now, and remember, when HMRC stopped being your friend, make sure you don't treat them as your friend. That's probably my takeaway. Sonia, you, you head up our incentives practice. 
look at a lot of employment tax matters. What, what do you think is the key thing going on at the moment? Thanks, Dan. I'm here really to talk about our employment tax focus and what we've been seeing in the market from an employment tax perspective. And I'd really like to, to echo, Dan, what you've said, that there's been a real shift in the market here in terms of HMRC approach and also how companies are responding. So if I was to look back sort of 10 years or so, uh, we, would, we would have been seeing something very different. We would have been seeing HMRC bring lots of anti-avoidance um, dispute cases, and there was a whole raft of anti-avoidance tax legislation coming in to clamp down on all sorts of avoidance schemes that people just can't do anymore or wouldn't even look to touch. And instead of that, what we've really seen is a shift by HMRC to looking at employment tax compliance. And you can see that in lots of different areas, frankly. So if I look at things like um, employee share plans, there's been a move away from HMRC assisting companies to work out whether their arrangements and plans are tax compliant, to putting that burden onto companies themselves. And equally, in more recent times, we've seen a lot of interest and um, attention from HMRC in a couple of areas which are significant tax compliance areas. One is national minimum wage compliance, where they've brought a whole host of, of cases and also investigated a lot of companies um, behind the scenes, which you will never have seen come out in the press. And then the one that I wanted to focus on today, which is a more recent um, effort by HMRC to pursue, as Dan says, revenue generation by looking very carefully at employment tax status. And what do I mean by that? I mean, basically, are you taxing people as employees or as self-employed? And, you know, you will have seen the high profile cases that have come out recently, whether that's you know, television presenters or professional football referees, and it may seem a million miles away from what you're doing within your organisation and your company, but actually the same kind of principles apply. And it's one of those areas where if you haven't already looked at it as a company, it is worth looking at it now and really pulling together a team of people from across your business to have a look at what arrangements you've got in place because this isn't something that's going to go away. And when the new tax changes come in next year, the sort of expansion of IR35, there will be ever more focus on this. And what we've really seen when we've been talking to companies is there are a lot of different people within a business that may have input here. So get obviously your tax people involved, but you're probably also going to need to get your HR people involved, possibly from a lot of different parts of the business. And you may also find that you need people from finance involved to really have a look and work out what your arrangements actually are. Because until you do that, given that this is all really fact specific, it's very difficult to work out whether you're at risk or not. Doing that kind of audit really takes time. And I guess what I would really encourage people to do at the moment is to use the time that they may have to have a look at this. And um, yes, HMRC may have uh, lost in the latest round of the professional football referees case, but that was very specific to football referees. Uh, as I say, this is not going away, and now is a really good time to look at it. Thanks, Sonia. I, I guess the government's intimated that it will be looking again at the distinction between employment and self-employment in, in the aftermath of COVID-19 and the fact that the self-employed did get government support. Um, if they do go ahead and do that, is that going to impact on business? 
I think I think it will because I think it's just another focus here on the distinction between the employed and the self-employed. And it's amazingly difficult in many situations to work out which side of the line people fall. I mean, we've certainly seen cases where you would think that people counted as self-employed. And then when you looked at what they actually did day in, day out, how they worked, who they worked with, their role, what kind of equipment they used, what authorities they had, uh, you actually find that they would be an employee from a, from a tax law perspective, at least. Maybe not from an employment law perspective, which also muddies the water, but here we are to talk about tax. Thanks. So over to David Sala, who's our head of indirect tax and real estate. David, what is going on in the world of real estate tax at the moment, and what should people be doing about it? Well, Dan, uh, let's start by just backing up and talking about what was going on in real estate and real estate tax pre-COVID. Uh, leading up to COVID and the lockdown, real estate area and the tax system really a cash cow for HMRC. We've seen a ramping up of taxation in the area. If you look at established land tax, particularly in the residential area, going up to rates of 15%. Um, the proposal to bring in a surcharge on top of that, uh, up 2% for uh, non-residents next year. We had non-resident capital gains tax introduced um, last year, the biggest change in capital gains tax in well, since the, it, was, it was created in 1965, we had restrictions on interest deductibility, we've had restrictions on carry forward losses. Uh, really, we've seen um, HMRC gearing up to raise taxation in this area. And at the same time as that trend, we saw the, the business realities in real estate uh, altering, the stresses in the retail shopping centre markets, we saw the uh, uh, stresses with the WeWorks model um, heading into this crisis. And at the macro level, the tax policy around real estate tax is really focused through the uh, Brexit lens of really one question, do we want the UK to become the Singapore or the Luxembourg um, you know, of the world? Or do we want a different tax policy? And that was really um, where things were heading. Now, we get into COVID, we get into lockdown, we get into the pandemic, what are we seeing now? Well, if you take the um, 2008 uh, great financial um, crisis, the banking crisis, and Brexit as a political crisis, uh, COVID is, the pandemic is all crises in one. You know, we've got political, we've got economic, we've got sociological, psychological, everything. And real estate is proving to be an incredible challenge because if you think about real estate, uh, the commercial value of real estate is based on usage of property. And if property can't be used at the moment because of lockdown and responses to the pandemic, we're going to be in trouble. And so, unsurprisingly, what we're seeing now are uh, issues around uh, valuation, difficulty in valuing funds and therefore open-ended property funds being gated. We're seeing them on payment of rent, which gives rise to stresses uh, um, to, to uh, landlords, which potentially ripples into stresses for lenders to landlords. Uh, where does that leave the tax system? Well, the tax system needs to be able to respond to these issues. So um, what do you do if you're a REIT? And under the tax rules, you, you need to uh, uh, distribute 
90% of your taxable profit, but you haven't got the cash. Um, what do you do um, around an inability to pay rent? Uh, how is the tax system going to respond to all of this? I think is going to be um, really like some of the big challenges that we're working on at the moment. And that will tie in also with um, commercially what happens to these big asset classes. We're, all we're ready, to, as I said, going into the crisis, talking about the future of shopping centres, uh, retail, what that would look like. Um, people are now asking similar questions around offices. Will they ever look the same again? And as I, if we went into this crisis, we went into this crisis with a tax system that was geared around real estate, as I said, milking it as a cash cow. I think just to take that metaphor a little bit further forward, uh, we're going to need to move into a system where actually the tax system is helping for more cows to be bred rather than milking the cows that we have. Thanks, David. We should now finish up by going to Chris, who's our global head of tax, and he's going to talk about what's live in the world of structured debt at the moment. Chris. So what to say about structured finance? Well, the most significant thing in structured finance right now is the impact of supranational tax rules. Now, what do I mean by supranational tax rules? Well, it's where a country is required to change its laws in a way dictated by an external grouping. The most obvious example of this is the impact of EU law on the laws of member states. But other groupings, such as the OECD, are also increasingly influential. Supranational intervention is increasingly popular, and the impact on structured finance can be profound. Let's look at some examples. First, ATAD 2. The hybrid extension is mandatory across the EU from the 1st of January of this year. So, for example, the ability of a structured finance SPV to get a deduction for interest cost can now depend on the tax treatment of its lenders and their related entities. This potentially exposes one lender to tax risk introduced by another lender. Secondly, the corporate interest restriction rules under ATAD may also restrict the deductions which an SPV can take. A number of transactions in Luxembourg have worked around this rule by using an exemption for securitization SPVs. That was fine until this week when the European Commission informed Luxembourg that its securitization exemption is incompatible with ATAD. Luxembourg has been given just four months to change its laws. This will have a significant impact on deals which have been structured to benefit from that particular exemption, and it is possible that a number of restructurings will result. Finally, let's talk about VAT. VAT is, of course, an EU-wide tax implemented in the laws of member states by their domestic legislation. The implementation in the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Ireland is such that there is no VAT reverse charge on structured finance SPV management and administration services from third-party countries. However, in late February this year, following further consideration of an EU tax case some time ago, the Dutch authorities announced a retrospective change of their prior practice on this point. That exposes many deals to an increased cost for the affected services. Speculation is now rife that Luxembourg and Ireland will also in due course be forced to follow suit. So what's the takeaway from all this? Well, 
supranational taxation is radically changing the environment to structured finance SPVs. Old structures need to be reconsidered, and new structures need to be structured with considerable care. Thank you all for watching or listening. If you have any questions or anything we've discussed, if you'd like to get in touch, do please drop us a line.